Gather your gear. It's time to head out for our road trip across America that will scare your pants off. Along the way, with your hosts, you'll be setting up camp in some of the scariest places they can find. Discover each episode a cryptid, a haunting, and a strange encounter. Climb aboard a cryptid camper if you're brave enough. Take it away, Shay. Live from our cryptid camper, I'm Shay, and I'm here with my good friend Tom, and we'd like to thank you for joining us for Season 3, Episode 25 of Scare Your Pants Off, our American road trip. In today's episode, we've set up camp in Montana. How you doing, Tom? I'm really good. I'm loving the weather right now. It's fall, you know, my favorite time, and I believe it's your favorite time of year as well. So I'm uh, looking forward to getting out on a hike soon with all you guys, and uh, yeah, not much. Oh, I know. The weather's been freaking fantastic. I don't care if it's rainy. I like the rain. I'm cool with that. But it just the fact that it hasn't been 900 freaking degrees every day and I don't I don't instantly feel like I need another shower right after I shower. It's beautiful. Have you watched anything good? Actually, I did. Yeah. Um, what, what, uh, I started House of Usher. Um, I think I'm five or six episodes in. Really, really liking that. It's got sort of a succession meets and i haven't watched all i've only seen a couple episodes of succession meets either dope sick or painkiller the show's about the the sackler family and the opioid crisis um and (laughs) elements of just mike flanagan's horror so uh really really enjoying that oh it's so it's so good oh my god yeah um, I'm not finished, but I started Goosebumps. Thank you for the recommendation. Really loving that. Me and my brother loved those as kids, and uh, they were just, it's just a lot of fun. Just along is so great. Yes, I love it. It's so nostalgic. Um, yeah, just really, really uh, enjoying it. Um, what else? Oh, American Horror Story. All caught, uh, watched the first five. I, I believe that's it for now until the second part. Um, I think you told me that. Uh, really enjoying that. Surprised. Enjoying Kim Kardashian. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really liking this season. It's been really good. Yeah, I can't believe, I literally, my mind is blown that I didn't hate Kim Kardashian the entire show. Um, I feel like she was perfect for the role, and, and I feel like it was really well executed. It was a cool story, and I and I can't wait to see what they do next. Um, oh, in the spinoff, they dropped four episodes the other night of American Horror Stories, and uh, I watched those, and really... Uh, I, I liked them. I, I, I like that story. I like American Horror Stories because it's, you know, no more than two episodes. Usually a story is just one episode, self-contained anthology. And don't get me wrong, I love American Horror Story, the main um, show, but it's nice to have just a, a, a self-contained episode here with, uh, with a cool story. So different, some of the stories a little different this year, um, but uh, really, really liking that too. What about you? I, yeah, no, I'm not caught up on American Horror Stories yet, but I am, it's a little a bit of a slow burn for me, but it's cool because it's, I can just watch one episode and have the whole story, so I do like it that way. I am current on Chucky. Yes, I 
forgot. Yes, I have been. I've been watching Chucky. I watched the first three episodes, really, really liking it. Um, I love that show. First season was amazing. Second season was great. Not as good as first, but great. And then this season in the White House, just right up my alley. Loving it, loving it, loving it. Um, just so much fun. Um, such a guilty pleasure of mine. And uh, yeah, so far I'm liking it more than I even liked the second season, which again, I thought was great, but it's, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. And and then I watched, I actually watched Renfield with Nicolas Cage. Oh, I've started it, but I haven't finished. I keep falling asleep about a half hour in. I mean. Oh my God, you're not, you will not regret it. You're going to love it. I know. Definitely be awake because it's, it is a fairly like dimly lit movie. So it's, it's not super easy on the eyes, but it's absolutely amazing. And you're going to love it. Ren, it looks really awesome, Renfield. Uh, like I said, I've started it probably 10 times, usually late at night, and that's why I haven't been able to get through it. But I love Nick Cage and just the story. It's uh, really, uh, you know, it's got that uh, elements of comedy that I really like. Um, hopefully this weekend I will get through it and then we can talk about it some more, maybe next episode or some time because uh, it's... It's on there. I just keep falling asleep for some reason. So I also watched Pooh, Blood, and Honey. And oh my god, it was fantastic. I really want to see that. Winnie the Pooh. I really, really want to see Winnie the Pooh, uh, Blood and Honey. Uh, we actually talked about maybe Roy, our friend Roy, is going to have movie day. Maybe watching it there. Um, I just It looks so, so good. And uh, yeah, I just right up my alley again. Um, yeah, no, I'm hoping we do watch it when we go over Royce. I actually think I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see you guys react to it. It's gonna be. I I really hope that's what we watch because you're gonna love it, and I can't wait to talk about it in a future episode because, um, I know I know Eric is chomping at the bit to hear us talk about it. So, so I was confused why Winnie the like how they were able to make this movie did they get the rights or anything so i looked it up and actually this i did not know maybe you knew um winnie the pooh is actually public domain now and that's how they were able to do it so i thought that was actually really really interesting because i was like hmm, this is like a beloved kids classic and we're making it into a horror movie <laughs> but uh really that's super interesting yeah I, I definitely, that's on my list. I can't wait to see that. And I actually heard a funny story. Uh, I believe it was in Florida. I think it was math teacher, but I don't know. It may have been a different subject. Kids were showing the kid, uh, kids were going to watch Winnie the Pooh for some reason. And she put on this version, <laughs> either on purpose or by accident. It's not really clear. Um, about a half hour in, kids started complaining. And uh, she, uh, about it being graphic and she supposedly continued or he but i think it was a she continued to keep it on for another half hour and it was a big mess and she got i think suspended or sent home because kids went to their parents it was um apparently quite the ordeal i'm just like how do you put this on in a middle school i believe it was a middle school too it's like oh god this country <laughs> Okay, so here's my thought. <laughs> they played it for a half hour before 
I know you haven't seen it, but if, if they played that movie for a half hour before they noticed there might be a problem, that person probably should not be a teacher or, or they did it on purpose. And well, I mean, maybe still shouldn't be a teacher, <laughs> but, um, and then an additional half hour. Yeah, no, there's, there's 0% chance they didn't know. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have, if you don't have anything else, do you want to jump on into your cryptid? Time for the cryptid. I do. I have the cryptid this week, and I am um, not going to lie. I was a bit disappointed with Montana's selection of cryptids. I mean, don't get me wrong. They have a few cool ones. They have the Bigfoot, the Wendigo, and the Flathead Lake Monster. But we covered the first two, and the third is your run-of-the-mill lake monster. Um, and we know my thoughts on... <laughs> lake monsters water monsters <laughs> anyway but i really did i really thought that big sky country would have more um but what are you gonna do so i ended up going with the shunka warak in aka the rocky mountain hyena aka the ringadokus aka the beast aka the creature of macone county have you heard of it no, I've never heard of that. Nice, neither did I. The very first sightings of this creature were by the Iowa and several other indigenous tribes that called these parts of Montana home. These tribes referred to the creature as Shinka Warak Ian, which literally translates to carrying off dogs. And this is because the creature would sneak into indigenous camps at night and steal their dogs. So, makes sense. Um, and actually, the Iowa, the Iowa actually tell of a fierce and deadly battle the tribe had with the Shunka Warak Inn. And after many hours or days, depending on the storyteller, and many deaths, the Iowa were victorious. They then took the pieces of its hides, placed it into sacred bundles so that they wore during battle to make them as hard to kill as the ferocious Shunka Warak had been. Anyway, the beast was described as wolf-like, all black, uh, black as night, with high shoulders, a uh, and a back that sloped like a hyena's and had a terribly ferocious roar. The first documented sightings of the beast by white settlers began in the 1880s when members of the Hutchins family settled in the Madison River Valley in the southern part of Montana. Not long after the Hutchins arrived in the area, they and several other locals began to encounter a strange wolf-like creature, but it was definitely not a wolf. Not only that, but the Hutchins were beginning to have a bigger problem. Something was attacking his and other farmers' animals, namely their dogs, geese, cows, goats, and sheep. One morning, Israel Amon Hutchins, the patriarch of the Hutchins, awoke to his dogs barking and going crazy. He jumped out of bed and found 
this canid beast chasing his geese. The beast fit the description of the Ringadocus. Dark black, high shoulders with a slanted back. So, we're Americans. He took a shot at it with his rifle. Of course he did. I, geese suck. <laughs> so, <laughs> that doesn't warrant it. <laughs> I know. It's, you know, what we do. But, I mean, it was attacking his geese, so... And that's, you know, they use that for their livelihood. So, okay, I kind of get it. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, he missed and ended up killing one of his cows instead. A few days later, he had another shot at one. And this time, he did not miss. But he was still down a cow from the first shooting. So Hutchins traded the carcass to a local businessman, Joseph Sherwood, in exchange for a cow. Sherwood was also a taxidermist, so he stuffed and mounted the creature and showcased it in his combo grocery store slash museum. Yes, it's Montana grocery store and museum, uh, just over the border in Henry Lake, Idaho. And it remained on display uh, but now dubbed the Ringadocus by Sherwood until the 1980s when it mysteriously disappeared. The only physical evidence of the existence of the stuffed Ringadocus was a black and white photo of the beast published in 1977 in the autobiography of naturalist Ross Hutchins, the grandson of Israel Amon Hutchins, the patriarch I had mentioned earlier and the original beast layer. In the photo, the creature looks wolf-like, but not quite a wolf. Something about the shape of its face and the arch of its back was different. The photo was captioned as Gaia Stichitus, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but then it's uh, it's G-Y-A-S-T-I-C-U-T-U-S, which many believe was made up, was made up to sound like a legit sort of scientific animal name, but nobody's 100% sure. Eventually, another of Israel Hutchins' grandsons, Jack Kirby, got on the case of trying to locate the stuffed beast. And after some time, he would learn that when Sherwood's museum shut down, the entire taxidermied collection was donated to an Idaho Museum of Natural History in Pocatello, Idaho, where it was all put into storage. It would have, he would eventually find it there, stating it was four feet long and 28 inches at the shoulder, very dark gray in color, with a low head and a sloping back. It had vague stripes on its flank, and Kirby was actually able to convince the, the museum to loan it to the Madison Valley History Museum in Ennis, Montana, where it's been on display for over a decade. Kirby actually took it to the museum himself, but not before making a pit stop at his grandfather's grave to reunite the mortal enemies. I love that. 
he brought it he brought it by the grandfather's grave i just such a like a wholesome cool story so today the creature dubbed the beast here is the museum's most popular exhibit so that's about it and it's not my favorite cryptid but a cool one uh nonetheless but you know i normally look i like cryptids with some supernatural or magical powers and stuff but i mean they can't all be like that so what are you gonna do anyway what is this thing is this uh what is the shunkai? Is it a wolf? Is it a coyote? A hyena? A wolf-dog hybrid? A dog-coyote hybrid? A hyena hybrid? I don't know. I mean, it really could be anything. And what's really, what I really like about like dog cryptids is that we know how malleable like uh, dogs are when it comes to crossbreeding. I mean, look at Labradoodles and all the weird crossbreeds that people have done. So it could be sort of any one of these hyenas, but um, it's, uh, or any, any one of these creatures, I did, I shouldn't say hyenas, but I, I don't know. And they, um, even though they have the animal, they, you know, the carcass at a museum, they won't do DNA tests because they feel like the mystery is, um, makes it more fun at this point so they've never officially done a dna test to see it if it is a crossbreed or just one or another or whatever but uh uh so i thought that was kind of interesting because usually we want to find out exactly what something is but they um yeah they have no interest in doing that so uh yeah that is the shunka warak in or the beast or rocky mountain and the hyena thoughts so that was that was really good i actually i love that he brought it to the guy's grave i don't know if it's so like i don't know i i don't know why i love that but i i love it i think it's funny um <laughs> yeah, you're right <laughs> uh i can't get over the grocery store slash museum <laughs> yeah no awesome job all right so i'm gonna jump on into my hunt time for the hunt I'm going to talk about the O'Fallon Historical Museum in Baker, Montana. It was built in 1916 and housed, sorry, it is housed inside the former county jail and sheriff's office and quarters. Now, it's believed that in 1947, the fiancé of the sheriff at the time arrived and asked if they may delay their wedding so they could get to know each other better. They had seemingly met in World War II, while serving overseas. Uh, it is believed, however, to be what sparked the events that would unfold next, combined with his financial woes. The sheriff took his own life by shooting himself in the heart with a sawed-off shotgun, leaving a note for his sister to be found by his body in his officer... found by his body in his office in the jail. There are actually six whole buildings in this complex, but this one had, I think, the most compelling story. Another fact that's kind of neat about this property is on this property uh, was born the world largest steer, and it was raised there, and then it remains there now after its death, 
and it was taxidermied, so it's on display in the museum. Uh, now, this hunt is very short, uh, yeah, I'll be honest with you. It was a little hard finding anything with a lot of meat on the bones, but this story hit me, so I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about it. Now, I also feel like the steer probably raised the stakes a little. Wah, wah. <laughs> now, some of the claims are that doors slam and there are footsteps. All of your usual stuff, lights flickering and so on. But my favorite part, my favorite claim here, is that disembodied, inappropriate conversations disembodied, inappropriate conversations can be heard. Now, I enjoy that. I don't know who's being mouthy walking around there, but makes me laugh a little, so. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's really it for my haunt, and I'm so sorry it's so short, but, uh, I'm, I'm excited, however, because I caught a little bit of a wind that you have a pretty cool, strange encounter, so if you want to jump on into that, you're welcome to. Time for the strange encounter. I do, I do. I have the the strange encounter this week, and this was really um, the Mariana UFO incident. So, a strange uh, uh, event was observed and filmed in the skies in August 1950 over Great Falls, Montana. The film footage of the sighting is believed to be, or is among the first ever taken of a UFO. So what happened? At 11.29 a.m. on August 15, 1950, although recently that date has been disputed, I'll get to that a little bit later, Nick Mariana, the general manager of the Great Falls Selectrics, a minor league baseball team, and his 19-year-old secretary, Virginia Ronig, were expecting the empty legion were inspecting the empty legion field before the game when all of a sudden a bright flash caught mariana's eye and according to his reports he saw two bright sil silvery objects rotating while flying over great falls he estimated that these objects or crafts were flying at speeds approximately 200 miles an hour to 400 miles per hour. It's tough to tell, you know, looking up in the sky. And it was roughly 50 feet wide. He also said that they, the ship was cruising at only about, a, uh, they were cruising only about 150 feet apart from each other, which is a very small distance in regards to air travel. You know, they're usually, you know, planes don't get that close. That's very close. Stunned by what he and Virginia were witnessing, he ran to his car to retrieve his 16 millimeter movie camera. And by the time that he got back, he was still actually able to film the UFO for about 16 seconds, which is, as we know in our research and doing this show, is quite a long time for UFO sightings. And the, the video was all in color, as the camera could record in color in 1950. So this is like super exciting, 1950 UFO caught on color. 
Unfortunately, though, it did not have sound capabilities. Um, so, no sound to it. So, the day after the sighting, the city's daily newspaper, the Great Falls Tribune, described the sighting and the film in an article which was subsequently picked up by other media outlets around the country. And for several weeks after the, the sighting, Mariana showed his film to friends, family, and local community groups, including the Central Roundtable Athletic Club. <sighs> there really isn't too much more for the actual sighting itself, but there's a lot about the military and government's response to it. And the response was more of the reason I picked it. Well, and that and the fact that it may be the first UF, uh, first documented UFO on video, or, you know, like I said, it might be the first or one of the first, so it's really important um, within the UFO community. So anyway, the Air Force was the first governmental entity to investigate the claims, and they quickly found, quotation, I'm using air quotes, what the object was. So after seeing the film, a reporter for the Great Falls Tribune called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and informed them of Mariana's sighting and film. A few days later, U.S. Air Force Captain John P. Brindelson interviewed Mariana at a nearby Maelstrom Air Force Base outside of Great Falls. In their discussion, Mariana and Miss Ronan both told him they had seen two fighter jets fly over the stadium shortly after their UFO sighting. And unfortunately, this may have been a mistake, as this statement would be the main focus of Brindelman's supposed investigation. So, with Mariana's permission, Brindelson sent the film to Wright Patterson Air Force Base for analysis. He even told a reporter in Great Falls he had picked up about eight feet of film from Mariana. However, in his message to Wright Patterson, he said he was sending approximately 15 feet, and this is Mariana, said that he is sending approximately 15 feet of moving picture film for the base to study. According to UFO enthusiast and historian uh, Jerome Clark, this discrepancy has never been cleared up. So, after a very brief examination, it was determined that the sighting was actually of reflections from the two F-94 jet fighters that were seen and known to be flying over Great Falls that day. And that, those were the ones that Mariana and Roenig had seen shortly after reflections really like reflections yep reflections <laughs> so i know i know it's ridiculous their response is ridiculous so lieutenant colonel ray taylor returned the film with a cover letter stating that our photos and that our photo as uh, our photo analysis were unable to find anything identifi identifiable of any unusual nature. Unfortunately, you know, <laughs> these government responses are just, they're awful. However, according to Air Force officer Edward J. Rupel, 
who would become the supervisor of the Air Force Project Blue Book investigation into this UFO mystery in 1951, that in 1950, there was no interest by the Air Force in this UFO. So after a quick viewing, Project Rudge, a previous name for UFO, for uh, the Air Force's UFO investigations, had just written it off as reflections from two F-94 jet fighters that were in the area. And you guessed it, more controversy would arise. Remember the discrepancy in the amount of tape delivered? Well, Mariana claimed that the first 35 frames of his film, which according to Mariana, most clearly showed the UFOs as rotating discs, were missing. And people in the Great Falls area who had viewed the film supported his claims. Mariana claimed that the missing frames clearly showed the UFOs as spinning metallic discs with a notch or band along their outer edges. The Air Force personnel denied this, obviously, denied this accusation, insisting that they had removed only a single frame of film which had been damaged during their analysis. Hmm. All right. And there's more. In January of 1951, Bob Cusadine, a writer and UFO skeptic, wrote an article for a cosmopolitan magazine in Cosmo entitled The Disgraceful Flying Saucer Hoax. It attempted to debunk the most famous UFO sightings and encounters to the, uh, up to that date, which included Mariana's sighting and film. So Mariana decided to file a slander lawsuit against Cassadine, claiming the article implied he was a liar, prankster, half-wit crank, publicity hound, fanatic. The lawsuit would eventually be dropped in, the, in September of 1955. In, 19, in July of 1952, Captain Rupelt was able to convince Mariana to let the Air Force see the film again for a more detailed analysis. Mariana reluctantly agreed, but only after requiring the Air Force to sign an agreement that they would not remove any film frames, uh, any frames of film. The film analysts at Wright-Patterson Air Force Space concluded that the objects in Mariana's films were not birds, balloons, or meteors. Moreover, the original conclusion the objects were reflections of F-94 jets was also ruled out. According to Captain Ruppelt in his memoirs, the two jets weren't anywhere close to where the two uh, UFOs had been. We studied each individual light and both appeared to be steady reflections, which we drew a blank on the Montana movie, which we drew a blank on the Montana movie. It was, un it was an unknown. So they clearly did not think it was the reflections. But in January of 1953, the Air Force and CIA convened a committee of prominent scientists to examine the best, again, air quotes, cases collected by Project Blue Book. Called the Robertson Panel, named after its chairman, physicist H.P. Robertson, um, 
they viewed Mariana's film. The scientists involved judged that the objects in the film were, right, here we go again, reflections of aircrafts known to have been in the area. So <laughs> they went back to the original explanation. I, this, this, this case is wild. I, I just don't get it. But there's actually still more. In 1954, Green Rouse Productions decided to film a documentary slash movie about UFO phenomena. They were able to get Mariana to allow them to view and use his film. To analyze the film, they hired Robert M. L. Baker Jr., a scientist and engineer for the Douglas Aircraft Company. Baker completed his analysis in early 1956 and found the explanation of reflections to be, in, and this is a direct quote, quite strained. So again, it goes back and forth in just in a few years. Then in 1968, Baker testified before a congressional hearing on UFOs that the hypothesis of it being a reflection had no merit. This was after 18 months of detailed analysis. In 1969, Baker presented a paper at the AAAS UFO panel organized by Thornton Page and Carl Sagan. Yes, Carl, the man, Carl Sagan. And that the object in the film was unidentifiable. I'm going to backtrack to 1966 and discuss the Condon Report, a, <clears throat> the government established and funded study of UFO phenomena. The committee would <clears throat> actually assign two researchers to reinvestigate the film. Roy Craig, a, a physicist that's skeptical of UFOs, and David Saunders, a psychologist long interested in the Mariana film. The first issue they found was that they were not sure if the sightings occurred on August 5th or August 15th, 1950. Now, remember, I mentioned that at the top. Um, and after much analysis and interview of Mariana and his secretary, Ronig, uh, the two came to, a, to different conclusions. For Craig, he did not think the sighting and film had much merit, especially after his interview of Roenig. Um, because what she said is when he pressed her on the supposed missing frames of the film, she said, what you have to remember in all of this is Nick Mariana is a promoter. That comment about Mariana was the final nail for Craig. He was, Craig just got it in his head that, you know, he's a promoter, he's trying to make money, he runs a minor league team. This is a cash grab. And so his, his mind was made up. Whereas Saunders was very impressed by Baker's analysis and could not get over the discrepancy of the missing frames. He would say that this was the one sighting of all, all time that did more than any other single case to convince me that there is something to this UFO problem. And that the film was strong evidence that we have extraterrestrial visitors.
So that is it. I know <laughs> there's a lot there, but as you can see, just that going back and forth and back and forth and it's this and that and this and that, that's why I had to pick it again. It was, you know, making the first documentary UFO on video in color in 1950, which are all reasons, but that governmental response and it's just, you know, 50, 51, 52, 53, 56, and then jumps a decade, but just crazy. So that was, that was super interesting. I, uh, it bothers me when they discredit people just because of something they may do for a living or, or whatever. Like, like it makes it less real that there could possibly be a UFO sighting of some sort because he owns a baseball team. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it, but I digress. That was really cool. I like that it was the first one. I like that there was video evidence and I love that it was so big. 50 feet. That's that's pretty big. I, it reminds me of like we've had a couple that were like city size and, and whatnot. And I just I love when they're I love when they're big. It's really cool. And that <laughs> but yeah, well, anyways, um, for those listening, um, we are having minor technical issues. But uh, so we we apologize for any issues you may have encountered during this episode and um well uh, i believe tom and i are are about ready to sign off for this one and uh unless you have anything else tom no that's about it so all right guys well thanks for joining us be sure to tune in next week when we set up in arkansas for our season finale until then Happy camping. Thanks, guys. As always, our hosts would like to thank you for joining. If you enjoyed the program, please be sure to like, follow, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Find us on Instagram at ScareYourPantsOffPod, no spaces, or on Twitter, ScareYourPantsOffPodcast. Or send us an email with questions, comments, and fan art to scareyourpantsoff9 at gmail. See you next time.